So today we continue with the munis triplex, which is the Latin word for the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. So I mentioned last time that John Calvin's a key proponent of this idea. Later, an Italian scholastic named Francis Turretin took it and developed it further. Turretin believed that there's a threefold misery of sin. One, ignorance. Two, guilt. And three, tyranny and bondage of sin. He then connected these three problems to the three offices. Christ the prophet rescues us out of ignorance. Christ as king frees us from the tyranny and bondage of sin. And Christ the priest relieves us of our guilt. For this reason, the threefold office has been called a triple cure. Even if we don't agree on such details, we'd agree with Turretin that Jesus is indeed the answer to our spiritual illness. This is a good occasion to stop and reflect. What specific need, human need, does the priest meet? How is this particular cure different than the one administered by the prophet or the king? Why do even unbelievers long for someone to come along to ease their conscience? In 1980, a New York artist named Alan Bridges became Mr. Apology. He set up a phone hotline called Apology Line. He posted flyers all over lower Manhattan, encouraging strangers to call and confess the wrongs they've done without, of course, revealing their identities. Soon his answering machine racked up thousands of hours of messages. People called and admitted to theft, affairs, violence, all sorts of things. The calls got increasingly disturbing in content. What started as a social experiment went on for 15 years. Towards the end, over half a million people called in from U.S. and Canada. It sure sounds like people are looking for some kind of priestly ministry to help them with their guilt. So how can we help those racked with guilt? How do we minister as priests? Of course, we're not Roman Catholics, Anglicans, or Episcopalians, so we don't believe in priests as a formal ministry office. But we cannot get away from this question because all believers belong to a spiritual house, the royal and holy priesthood. We find in 1 Peter and Revelation that all of us are priests. The reformer Martin Luther promoted this truth against the accepted medieval practice of his day. He said it rather concisely, quote, faith alone is the true priestly office. The fact remains, Jesus Christ is our high priest, and we serve as priests under him. So also the question remains, why does the world need priests? To answer, we go back to the scriptures, but since there's so many relevant passages, I have to be selective, summarize, and only read some of these. 
And so I'm going to hop around a little bit. First, we'll start with some foundational verses. If you don't have a Bible, please take one in the pews and take it home as a gift from us to you. So again, some foundational verses. Priests show up early in the Bible without much introduction. So there's Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem in Genesis 14. We'll have to come back to him. This Potipharah, an Egyptian priest whose daughter Asenath became Joseph's wife. Moving on to Exodus, we have Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. He was a priest of Midian. The details about the priesthood in Israel begin in earnest after their arrival in Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. And Exodus 19, 3-6 is a kind of a mission statement for Israel. So let's just read that passage, and it's, as it does mention priesthood. Exodus 19, 3-6, and I'll just read it for you if you want to follow along. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. We have here some main ideas about the priesthood. There is one of belongingness to God and another of separation from the world. Note also how the privilege of being a kingdom of priests or a priestly kingdom is for all the children of Israel. So to make this clear, the priestly mission was for every citizen. The priestly vocation was not. It's worth repeating that today, every believer in Christ has both the priestly mission and the priestly vocation. But during that old dispensation within Israel, the formal office of priest belonged to one line within the tribe of Levi. Staying in Exodus, we skip to chapter 28. Here are some detailed instructions given to Moses. Let's read a few verses at the beginning and at the end. So Exodus 28, so I'll read verses 1 to 4 before skipping down to a later verse. Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. And there are garments, there are the garments which they shall make, a breast, breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister to me as priest. Now skip down to verses 40 to 41. For Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them for glory and beauty. 
So you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister to me as priests. So note the repetition of key phrases. Aaron your brother, his sons with him, minister to me as priests, for glory and beauty, consecrate. Let's stick with the most obvious facts. From the children of Israel, the kingdom of priests, there come Aaron and his sons, a family of priests. Within that house, Aaron is set above his sons, though all of them were anointed and belonged to the priesthood. Aaron becomes the prototypical high priest, the one set above other priests. This is similar to how Moses is set above other prophets until, of course, Jesus arrives. Like most ranks, you could tell just by looking at the high priest that he's different. While all wear holy garments, only high priests could wear the breastplate, the ephod, the blue robe of the ephod, the intricately woven band of the ephod, the pomegranates and gold bells, the turban with the holy crown, engraved with the words, holiness to the Lord. There's extra glory and beauty for Aaron and those who take his place after him. But the high priest wasn't wearing these for the fashion runway. Aaron went before the holy God of Israel, and he took all the tribes with him as their representative. The tribal names were engraved on stones that form his essential attire. Exodus 28 verse 29 says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. There is great dignity and yet great burden in this role. Hebrews 5, 1-4 sums up well the high priest's calling and representative function. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people so as for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes his honor to himself but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. So that's enough general background on the priesthood of Aaron. But how does it connect to Jesus? If you graduated from the elementary principles of Christ, you would turn to the letter of Hebrews as your textbook. It would really enrich your advent to read that whole book at home. But for now, I'll only discuss a few points. Hopefully this picture will help. Picture the letter of Hebrews, or letter to the Hebrews, as a large body of water, like an ocean. Flowing into it are three rivers. These rivers are Old Testament passages taken from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Each heads toward the truth of Christ as our high priest from different starting points. One starts at Psalm 110. I'll call this river Melchizedek. 
The second starts in Leviticus 16. I'll call this one Yom Kippur. The third one is from Jeremiah 31. I'll call this one the New Covenant. If these rivers could talk, they'd say there's something bigger and better ahead. First Psalm 110 tells us that Jesus is a better priest than Aaron. Jesus is a better priest than Aaron. Secondly, Leviticus 16 tells us that Jesus takes us to a better place than earth. Leviticus 16 tells us that Jesus takes us to a better place than earth. Thirdly, Jeremiah 31, Jesus offers a better relationship than ever before. Jesus offers a better relationship than ever before. See how the law, prophet, and the Psalms together testify to Christ's high priesthood. So let's read Psalm 110 first. That gets us talking about Melchizedek. And I won't read all of it, just verses 1 to 4. Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, ruin the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I like to say there are two paradoxes in Psalm 110. First, as taught by Jesus himself, Christ is not only David's son, he is David's Lord. Secondly, as stressed here in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is not only a king, he is also a priest. Let's talk about this second paradox with the help of Hebrews 7. In a word, the ministry of Jesus is connected to Melchizedek, and that makes him qualified to be priest, and that makes him a quality priest. Consider these as subpoints. He's qualified to be priest. He's a quality priest. First, Jesus is qualified to be priest. Now, under the law of Moses, Jesus could not qualify as priest. He's from the royal line of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. But as we just read in Psalm 110, Christ is the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Like Melchizedek, who himself was king and priest at the same time, Jesus can be king and priest at the same time. There's a lot more details about this, but I won't get into that. Just know that Jesus is qualified to be priest because of his connection to Melchizedek. Further, Jesus is also a quality priest. That's underselling it by a lot. He's actually of the highest quality. And that again goes back to Melchizedek. So he's a bit of an enigma, Melchizedek. It's clear that Abraham honored him. Abraham gave him the tenth of the spoils of war, and he was blessed by this king priest. And here's the argument via syllogism. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Abraham is greater than Levi. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Levi. 
There's more concerning Jesus' better quality. Christ's priestly office is not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. There's changeability in the priesthood of Aaron. There has to be many priests. Death inevitably ends one's term in the office. In contrast, Christ, having defeated death, continues as one high priest forever. He holds an unchangeable position. So Jesus is a better priest than Aaron. That's why he's able to take us to a better place than earth. And now let's look at another passage, Leviticus 16, and it gets us talking about Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement. Before I read portions of Leviticus 16, let me set the stage, at least minimally. Here's another illustration. When it comes to government work, we know that there are three levels of security clearance, confidential, secret, and top secret. Similarly, when it comes to the place of worship, the Israelites knew that there are three levels of access, the court, the holy place, and the most holy place. Keep that in mind as we read portions of Leviticus 16. First, let's read verse 1. This is after two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were punished for ignoring God's commands. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come just at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. This shows how dangerous it was to handle the things pertaining to God. It was especially dangerous to go inside that inner sanctum, the holiest of all. But there is one day of the year Aaron and later high priests can enter that room beyond the second curtain. It's on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. On that day, the high priest and only the high priest can and must enter this top secret area. Skip down to verses 29 to 34. Leviticus 16. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever, and the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. In late September or early October, we hear about Yom Kippur. It's a calendar reminder that our attempts to reach God is futile, limited. A champion might climb to the summit of Mount Everest. We can send a man to the moon with technology. 
But there's no one morally perfect who will get us into God's presence until Jesus came along. So here's why we need him. He can take us where no one else can. In Hebrews 8, we're told that Christ is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. Jesus works at a better location than Aaron. The earthly tabernacle built by Israel was a mere copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Think of it as a 3D model of the real location. And then in Hebrews 9, we're told how Jesus had his own day of atonement. Once and for all, as he entered the perfect tent of heaven. Let me read verses 11 to 14 now. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the great and more, greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ's work as high priest takes you out of this world into the most holy place of the universe into the very presence of God. Jesus can take us to God because he is God with us. He takes us to the highest heights because his blood cleanses us in our deepest parts, even our own conscience. Aaron and his successors entered and exited, went in and out, over and over and over again, once a year to a place on earth. Jesus entered once for all to a better place, having obtained eternal redemption. So we've talked about who and where. Now let's talk about what Christ brings. Without question, every high priest is appointed to offer something. To bring us to God, Jesus brought himself as an offering. That gets us to the next point, There's a better relationship through Jesus. And that gets us talking about the new covenant. Before I read from the book of Jeremiah, let's get some basic principles of the covenant. There's that saying that it's not a done deal until one signs on the dotted line. A contract is not valid until it's sealed with your name. Similarly, in the Bible, a covenant is not valid until it's sealed with blood. Now, what is that covenant we enjoy through Jesus? It's not the covenant made through Moses. Christ is the mediator of a better covenant, which which was established on better promises. It's a new covenant that makes the older one obsolete. Let's turn to Jeremiah 31. And let's see those terms of agreement, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. 
Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. This new covenant gets us an intimate relationship with God. It's a result of that forgiveness of all our sins. But there was a great, great price paid for that blessing. God's Son died and shed His blood to make this reconciliation possible. So let's pick this up in Hebrews nine fifteen to 22. And for this reason, He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. The pronouncement of Moses, this is the blood of the covenant, should sound familiar to us. Jesus, when he shared his last supper with his disciples and instituted the Holy Communion, took the cup of wine and said, This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. Both Moses and Jesus are holding up the blood like a pen to sign on the dotted line. Be sure to sign the contract with Christ. That's one guarantee you can trust. You won't ever regret it. Even if you tally up all the high priests of the law and sacrifices under Moses, You'll never secure peace with God. In the law, there are only consciousness and reminders of our guilt. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. There is a better sacrifice in Jesus. Christ is the most high priest. He is the one who entered the most holy place with his own blood. He offered his own body once for all to do the will of God. All the guilt and shame we carry are resolved through that one perfect sacrifice for sins. So Jesus is Christ. Christ is the high priest better than Aaron. He takes us to a better place to enjoy a better relationship. So in this Advent season, let's appreciate this gospel truth. 
All of us seek inner peace. We want to assuage the pangs of our conscience. Some look inward and seek escape through drugs and meditation. Others travel and look for the sacred and the beauty in this world. Still others look to religious authorities, rabbis, imams, monks. But none of these will save you from your guilt. No fellow sinner can grant you forgiveness for sins of lust, coveting, evil thoughts, and words. God's Son became man to become our priest. In all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. He lived a perfect life as the lamb without blemish and without spot, as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Next, our Lord went to Jerusalem. He died on the cross at Calvary in our place for our sins. He suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people with his blood. Because the veil of his flesh was torn, the veil of the temple was torn. His shame grants us boldness to enter the holiest place. Now we can have hope that extends out of this world into the very presence of God. Christ's priestly work on earth is done. Because his sacrifice is perfect, Jesus does not need to offer himself again or suffer often. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. Then God's Son rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God, the Father. From there, he can save us to the uttermost, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Now, will you come to the Father, to Christ the High Priest? To do so, all must repent, turn from sin and self-righteousness, turn and trust only in Jesus, and his work. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If we make him our high priest, there is now no condemnation. We can boast, live boldly with a clean conscience. We can speak as Paul did. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And we can sing together, this is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we see all the chaos around us and even the inner turmoil that we have. Lord, we are burdened by our guilt. Lord, we are burdened by the sin we see around us, the pressures, the struggle that we have as humans. We know it's that it's because of the fall. It's because of our sin nature. It's because of what happened with Adam thousands of years ago. But we thank you that your son is the second Adam, 
And Lord, we have forgiveness. that He came to us, sympathetic to us, yet without sin, took care of our sin problem, and now sits up in heaven. And upward I look, I see him there. So help us to look up, not be so downtrodden. Because of our sin and because of the consequences of our sin, there's so many temptations to despair, Lord. But we ask that you'll keep our eyes on you and keep our eyes on your promises. We thank you that your son is our high priest. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.